I'm James, and this is the Chats with James podcast. In this episode, I'm chatting with Eliza Weissman. This episode was recorded on the 7th of April, 2022. For more episodes and show notes, visit jamesmunns.com podcast. It's been over a year since the last episode, but I hope to occasionally publish more starting with this one. This one is definitely a long one. Enjoy. Special thanks to Louis Zong for the music. Yeah, I spend way too much time listening to podcasts and like, especially like D and D podcasts are like the thing that I found oh, yeah. a while ago, just because they produce so much content. And I just mm-hmm. like having people speaking in the background because it Same. helps my brain shut off. Yeah. I listen to a lot of podcasts when I'm like cooking or doing chores around the house. I, I listen to a lot of, well, there's your problem, which I, I think a Oh, you would love it. It's a podcast about engineering disasters with slides. What? Oh, you should you should check this out. Um, well, there's your problem is like my favorite podcast. It they talk about like historical engineering disasters and like how what happened and why, and then they just like make a lot of jokes and it's like very irreverent and the show has like extremely like leftist politics. So like, what else could you ask for? And I love those sort of like engineering failure stories. Yeah. There's um, a, there's some, there's so much to learn from them. Yeah. I've seen like the air disasters. Like there, there used to be like the air disasters yeah. website. And I know someone's making a podcast. I think rooster teeth is making a podcast about it now where they just go through the details, but they're like, especially the aviation ones are so interesting because you like, they go deep in the investigation. So yeah, like they figure yeah. out exactly what happened. A lot of like, well, there's your problem. The one of the hosts is like a, a structural engineer. So he sort of focuses, like they do a lot of episodes about like buildings and dams and bridges and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do other things as well. And it, it's just a really, really fun show, despite the like extremely dark sort of content. Because like like the hosts are just like very very entertaining and it's kind of silly and they all have good politics so that's one of my favorite podcasts. Anyway, cool. we, we're on the podcast talking about other podcasts that we like. So, I mean that's yeah. meta. I mean I haven't released an episode in like a year, so I mean whatever meta we get into is going to be totally fine. But before we get too far, do you want to yeah. give yourself a quick introduction? Uh, for sure. So my name is Eliza Wiseman. Um, I am a system software engineer at um, a company called Buoyant, um, formerly based in California. Now we're sort of a globally distributed remote organization. And the main thing that I do for my day job is I work on a piece of software called Linkerd. Um, and Linkerd is what is called a service mesh. So you have these like um, like really big web backends for like for big web applications that have all of these like microservices, right? These like different components that all talk to each other over like some RPC protocol. Um, and what Linkerd is is it's sort of a, a proxy layer that you put in front of all of these different microservices and all of the like interest service communication. So like within the data center, all of the different services talking to each other sort of goes through this, like this application layer proxy. Um, and it has two components. It has sort of a control plane that, you know, pushes configuration and management, collects metrics, stuff like that. And then you have these proxies and the proxies sit in front of each each application service and traffic is routed through them uh, 
we use IP tables for that actually. So it's like kind of transparent. Um, and in the proxy layer, you can do all of these like really cool things. Like you do routing obviously and load balancing, but you can also do stuff like um, the proxy layer actually is where we can implement like mutual TLS. Um, so you get these like security benefits for free. And all of this is kind of like stuff that people would have to like re-implement over and over again in each of these like microservices. And maybe they're like written in different programming languages or like running different software stacks. And you don't really want to have to like copy a bunch of code or you also don't really have this like single management plane for all of those configurations. Mm -hmm. If like the load balancer settings are just sort of embedded in like each service, maybe they're different. And it's really maybe an ops responsibility more than like an application developer responsibility. So maybe they want to configure those things globally, but they they can't because like every application and you know, they use like different libraries and different languages and so on. So the idea of, of putting all of this stuff into the proxy layer and making things like TLS, load balancing, networking metrics, uh, and application routing is sort of a, a concern of the network layer instead of a concern of each application service. And so we have this. Yeah, it's the sort of like roads and bridges. It's the stuff that really exactly. everyone sort of needs. And rather than having right. everyone having to invent their own standard and invent their own things, that it's, it's exactly letting everyone kind of share that. And it's funny, when you said Linkerd, my brain was primed and ready to think, I work on this little project called Tokyo. I do also work on that. I suppose Tokyo is more the means rather than the ends, whereas like Tokyo is yeah. widely used in a ton of different ways, but Tokyo yeah. isn't the product. Tokyo is sort of like, yeah, like the means to the end of, of Linkerd. Um, the first version of Linkerd was actually written in Scala. Um, and the reason for that is that a lot of uh, the founders of Buoyant, my employer, our former Twitter engineers and Twitter at the time was like very all in on the Scala programming language. Um, and at Twitter, they had written this really quite wonderful library called Finagle. Um, and Finagle is this like functional programming inspired RPC library. So you model like clients and servers for network services using this sort of functional um, service abstraction, you can layer in all of this different middleware that does things like routing, load balancing, so on. And this is just like this big Scala library that honestly is a little bit hard to use and it doesn't really have... I've never heard that about Scala before. <laughs> right. And it doesn't really have this sort of like global configuration plane. So the original thing that my company did is we just took all of the cool like load balancing and reliability features and metrics and all of this stuff Finagle does, we just take that and turn it into a standalone proxy. Um, but sort of the problem was that this sort of space of um, like the service mesh space, the peop a lot of the people in it ended up using Kubernetes. And the original Linkerd ran in, so you have these like cluster orchestrators, right? That like big cloud thing where you have like um, application containers and you want to schedule a bunch of them. So you have some, some system that like schedules the different containers across multiple machines in the distributed system and handles like, you know, who can talk to who and like what ports are exposed and all of this stuff. And the first version of Linkerd was very agnostic in like what environment it might run in, but most of the industry sort of centralized on Kubernetes. And one of the things that people wanted to do in Kubernetes is that they wanted to deploy these pods or these, these 
proxies in sort of a per service model. I mean, Kubernetes calls them pods. It's like one or two containers that are deployed together. And so people wanted to use this sort of sidecar model where each... So to zoom out real quick, so you, so like for both the listeners I mean, and everyone else, like... Yeah, sorry, this is kind of... I am very much an embedded engineer where, where like my world right. is like measured in kilobytes, but I know that we're right now we're talking in the domain of like large scale infrastructure providers like a Google or as an Amazon. Big servers. Yeah. Who are, who are, or on-prem. Yeah. Or people we're managing who, like, like run big data centers. Yeah. They're managing systems of systems where they're, where they're deploying yeah. hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of items and they need some way of wrangling. Absolutely all of these and getting them to talk to each other and configuring all of them and launching them together. So when we're talking at like the scale that we're talking here, we're talking huge scale. Yeah. And well, this is where it gets interesting. This is why, where you asked about Tokyo, this is how we get to Tokyo. <laughs> um, is that, uh, so like in these, these systems are running on like insane servers, you know, like you have these like rack mounted machines that have like 128 cores and like terabytes of RAM and like these really big beefy machines. But sort of the whole idea is that those machines are not really executing a single server the way that like in previous models in like nineties, you would have like a server that's, this is the mail server, you know, now you have each of those big like rack mounted like servers from HPE or whatever, those are running like a million different app there. They become essentially each server is treated sort of like a CPU core in the sort of distributed operating system. Like you used to have maybe each server is doing one thing. Now you have each of these like application processes that are sort of being treated as though they are being scheduled across all of the nodes in the system. And that's sort of the deployment model of a lot of these applications. So are we talking like virtual machines or containers at this point or a little bit of both? Um, so we're talking about containers mostly. Okay. In a lot of these systems, if you are, if like somebody is using like Google Cloud or AWS, what they actually probably have is the hardware belongs to AWS or Google Cloud. And then on that hardware, they are running VMs that are running Kubernetes and those VMs are running your containers, you know, like they probably have VMs for each customer and, but the VMs become some are pushed down into like, that's the service providers way of like segmenting their infrastructure. And then at the user level, you have containers. Makes sense. The place that I was trying to get to <laughs> is, so we have written this like Scala proxy that does all of this wonderful stuff and you know that people like complain a lot about the JVM. JVM is actually quite fast, right? Like Java Virtual Machine performance, it used to be bad. People like really used to like trash Java for this, but like Oracle and Sun did a bunch of engineering work on like Hotspot, the JIT, and like the JVM performance in terms of how fast it is. It is often as fast as native code because everything gets jitted down and it basically is native code. So the JVM actually, in many ways, is quite good. There's one thing that it is extremely bad at doing, though. It's good at scaling up, right? If you have like a fast CPU, Java applications, and therefore Scala applications, pretty good at taking advantage of that. The thing that it is absolutely terrible at is scaling down. Okay. So you cannot take a JVM. Like every JVM is using, I don't know, like 60 megabytes of RAM mm. just for the JVM, you know? 
like because you're running in this in this virtual machine that has like a bunch of code associated with it and then you have to load all of the classes into the vm and jvm programs are just like massive in in terms of their memory footprint primarily mm-hmm. and there's also this problem of of gc pauses and this is where we got to rust uh, and the way that we got to rust is sort of two things one of the things is that in these like big distributed systems that we're talking about the absolute most important thing is latency. We care we care a lot less about the, some of the stuff that you probably care a lot about in embedded, right? Like that it's very very important for your binaries to be as small as possible, to use as little memory as possible, but we care massively about latency. And where it gets really interesting is that the latency we care about isn't really the average case latency. We care about like Basically, the latencies you care about in a distributed system start at the 99th percentile, maybe the 95th percentile. Like 95th percentile is the latency that you care about. 99th, 99.9th percentile. You care about these extreme tail latencies because of the scale of the system. If like millions of people are using Gmail Mm -hmm. and you say that like Gmail runs like all of these you know, rendering a web page for the Gmail web UI normally takes like three milliseconds, but in an extreme tail case, it maybe takes five minutes, right? You have these like, and that's like very statistically improbable. But if you have millions of people using that application, the thing that statistically never happens is happening like every five minutes. Yeah, that's one of those things that I've heard is, is you talk about like one in a million or one in a billion events. And if you're talking about handling billions of requests per second. That means you're going to have one of those one in a billion events every second. And it's really funny that you mentioned embedded systems, because especially for safety critical embedded systems, this is a huge thing because when you make hard real-time guarantees, that's a big thing is that the answer is this should never happen. We actually even have like terms for describing that for like responding to certain events. You'll have what's called the worst case execution time. Mm -hmm. You actually have to figure out like literally if everything goes wrong, how bad does it get? Which yeah. is a lot like, I guess, you know, the the fifth, ninth of uh, yeah, exactly. response time and things like that. People in the distributed systems world talk about it statistically instead of deterministically, but it's it's very much, it's basically the same thing. It's that, you know, at massive scale, things that never happen, happen every day. I think that makes sense. I mean, I would call those systems soft real-time systems. Like they are. In the same way that video games or audio processing is like... Yeah, they absolutely are. Somebody gets mad. No one's going to die if anything goes wrong, but you're going to know when it goes wrong. The system is not designed to ensure that everything absolutely happens by a certain deadline. It's designed to ensure that things always happen as responsively as possible. The other thing is that these tail latencies are the latencies that cause outages. Like if stuff, if something is slower than it normally is, and the rest of the system can't cope with that, that's when things start to back up. And when things start to back up is when you start to run out of memory because you're waiting for whoever you're talking to to process the the things you want them to process. And, oh, you have to buffer them for longer because you're waiting. You start to run out of memory. Maybe the operating system kills you because you're using too much memory. And then, oh, now that thing is dead. And whoever depends on that is like, well, I'm having a problem because I can't talk to it. And that's when these sort of cascading failures that take down distributed systems can start to happen. So you care about tail latency for two reasons. One of them is that's the latency that makes users mad and you don't want to do that. 
you know? Uh, <laughs> two, it is also the latency that sometimes, like anything unexpected is what causes the operational problems. The things that don't happen every day cause outages. Yeah, that's one of those, that's one of those things, especially in embedded systems where like, if it's hard to reproduce certain bugs, those tend to be the worst understood. Where mm-hmm. if you have something mm-hmm. that happens a million times a day, you're going to understand exactly like the failure mode and all of those kind of things. But as soon as something only happens one in a million or one in a billion or only under certain loads and in certain problems, you get those kind of failures that, like you said, if you if you start exploring all of the corners of all of your interconnected systems, stuff starts going really poorly, really quickly. Yeah, for sure. And and okay, so this is back to the question, but why Rust? <laughs> way, way that we mentioned, like, I don't know, 15 minutes ago, the reason, so we have this Scala proxy, right? And it's actually quite fast. It has pretty good performance, but these, these Scala proxies, when they're actually running, they take up a, a huge amount of memory. They're running on the JVM. And the other thing is that they, the JVM is garbage collected. So you have these garbage collector pauses and like the JVM GC is probably the, the best lowest latency GC of all of the GCs in garbage collected programming languages. It's still garbage collected. And what that means is that you have latency spikes when the garbage collector is running and you really, really don't want that. And people, this like big fat proxy that uses a lot of memory and uses a lot of CPU cores it is designed for this sort of per host deployment model where each of your servers, you have one of those proxies running on it. Every application program on that server is talking to that big fat proxy. And then that big fat proxy is talking to the same big fat proxy on the server that's like one rack unit up from you, you know, and then it's all of the traffic is going between those two proxies and then they're distributing it to all of the other processes on their node. And so that's like one deployment model, sorry. But the alternative deployment model, the and the one that people really started to want in this space is one where each of those, instead of having this, this sort of centralized big per host proxy, you have ind- smaller individual sidecar proxies and these are running next to each of those application containers. Okay, so you said sidecar twice, and this is a phrase that I've seen before, but I have no idea what a sidecar is. In this case, that is sort of a, that's a Kubernetes term. Um, I think that it, it may be used in other systems, but basically what that means is you're telling the scheduler every time you start one of these containers, you also start this other container and they our buddies. Okay. You know, this container runs right next to that other container and they're part of a single Kubernetes calls this a pod, which is sort of like a deployable unit of a thing. And that's sort of like the abstraction of like what it schedules and it schedules them together all the time. So you're saying like, I want this daemon to run next to the application server. Gotcha. And the reason that you want that, the big reason you want that model is for security reasons. Uh, or security and and this sort of concept of zero trust networking. I, I this honestly, my plan was not to come on the show and talk about anything I do for my day job, and yet here we are. I'm excited to to hear the things that people are excited yeah. about. So when you say zero trust, that's that's a phrase I've heard in a lot of different contexts. Yeah. And here in zero trust networking, does that mean these live next to each other, so their conversation can be secret between the two of them and 
the whole world doesn't need to hear it? Or is there another meaning for zero trust? The main thing it means is that this is also sort of a way that the world of networked server applications has changed since, I don't know, the 90s or early 2000s, which is where in that sort of earlier era, you have this idea of like perimeter-based security. And that's where you have everything that comes into your data center comes in through this firewall. You know, and that firewall knows who's good and who's evil, and it maybe terminates TLS, right? So it has a certificate that's like, here's the the TLS certificate that was issued for like migratewebsite.com, and it sits right at the front of the data center. Everything that comes in is like you have these encrypted connections coming in, and that big ingress proxy, that's also a proxy. They're, this stuff is all proxies, distributed systems proxies all the way down. And, you know, and they all do different things. So this is like, this is like the medieval town. These are like city right. gates where you say the stuff right. inside the city gates, totally safe. I can trust it. But we check everyone at the border who comes in and out and we make sure everything's good at the border. And the other sort of critical thing is identity. Um, is that like TLS, right? You don't, you have encryption, but you also have identity. You have some, like when you get the little lock in the, in Firefox or whatever, the little lock icon, that means not only does it mean this connection is encrypted, but it also means when I did a handshake with the server, they sent me a proof that they have a certificate and that certificate has some key material in it that shows that it was signed by a certificate authority that I trust. That means that this server that I'm talking to, not only can no one else sniffing the network read the, the messages that we're exchanging, but it also means that I, I have reason to believe that I'm talking to a server that actually represents google.com or whatever. And that, of course, like that's a human abstraction. And the way that you trust it is that these, these CAs are just like seven companies that issue root certificates and you trust them just because there's not a lot of them. So, so you have this notion of identity too. And the reason that that sort of matters is that, well, I mean, it, it, there's two, two functions of encryption here to ensure no one else is reading your messages, but also to in- ensure you're talking to who you think you're talking to. Yeah, I run into this with embedded systems too, because especially mm-hmm. when you have embedded systems, like think of your like home router. If you want to have an SSL connection to your home router, right. that's actually really problematic because there is no, like you said, the human abstraction of the URL. Like I am proving that I'm talking to this URL, Yeah. but on your local network, there's no google.com because DNS is outside of your network. And so like right. getting something like a secure connection over Wi-Fi to your your wireless router is actually really challenging from an embedded systems perspective because you can't ask a CA to be like, is this 192.168.01? Because everyone else has one of those in their home network. And so how do you prove that this is the one that I'm expecting to be talking to? And I I imagine that's got to be the same when you have these. They have exactly the same problem (laughs) inside the data center. Literally exactly the thing you have described. And this is what this idea of zero trust networking is about. It's saying all of the workloads within the perimeter, they all have cryptographic identities. And there's a cluster CA that issues cryptographic identities and says this workload actually is who who they claim to be. And all of the connections inside the cluster are encrypted. So if like one of those microservices is compromised, somebody finds like some security hole in it and sends it like some and if somebody gets root on that machine, they can't read everything else that's going on around them because the whole cluster treats everyone else in the cluster as though it's mutually untrusted. And that's So you're running like 
a miniature CA yes. inside of the data center that says when you spin up this container, okay, you I now authenticate for some limited amount of time that you are yes. identity X Precisely. and I'm introducing identity X into the neighborhood yeah. and until this time's out in a day or whatever. Yeah. You're allowed to trust this cryptographic public key as yes. whoever it says it is. Right. Instead of everything inside the data center is plain text and everything coming in from the outside world is encrypted. So that's this notion of zero trust. In this like zero trust world, you have these proxies. If the proxies are responsible for the TLS, right, for responsible for maintaining or establishing and maintaining the encrypted connections, which you want, because all of this security stuff is kind of a pain and like application developers don't really understand it all of the time. And they want to focus on like doing web backend stuff that I personally don't give a shit about. <laughs> like, I don't know, like they know how to write SQL queries that are good or whatever. I have never written a SQL query in anger in my entire life. I don't know about web app stuff. But I do, like, I know some things about TLS and, like, how to do it correctly. And also, we want to have this CA that pushes key material to these different application processes. And we want to do that in a consistent, single, like, plane of, of control way. So we want to have the proxies do the TLS. And the reason that we want to move away then from this, like, per host model to a sidecar model is that you want you want the the trust boundary for that key material to be like the individual application workload and not the the machine in the data center because sort of the whole idea of the cloud is that the machine in the data center is an implementation detail that you don't actually care about you don't say there's a, a cryptographic certificate for like the machine on rack 56 row 7 or whatever you say there's a cryptographic identity for the user's service or the profile service or the widget service or whatever. Mm. And if you're doing that, you need the key material to stay within the thing that actually has that identity. And that thing might be on any number of servers on any number of rows in different data centers. You want to scope it as small as possible so that yeah. basically the damage control. So like if, if that gets damaged, you know that they've only right. exploited, like you said, the, the user identity server, but not the credit card server or or those kind of things that you're keeping sort of the blast radius for, for these kind of things as low as possible. Yeah, that is a big part of it. The other thing is that you also want these identities to be like semantically meaningful. You want it to mean something in the like in what the application is doing and not it's the key for this particular piece of hardware, mm. because that particular piece of hardware might be doing one of 50 things. It might have like all of these containers might be running on the same box and then like some of them might get rescheduled somewhere else. And now that box is doing something completely different. That specific, you know, and then that piece of hardware probably dies. That's the other thing that happens at scale is hardware fails like on a daily basis because these once in a million events happen a lot when you have a million servers. So like that, that machine might get deracked and replaced with something else. And that identity is meaningless. You want the identity to refer to the workload, not the hardware. Gotcha. So you're you're identifying the person doing, you know, in my very metaphor, you're identifying the person who's doing the work yes. rather than the address that the person is residing at. Whereas that's sort of the more traditional. Right. Because I might move. Yeah. So that's like the traditional model. You say as long as the address is within this bubble, we're good. Yeah. Whereas now, because you can have people shuffling around to working in different places, that's sort of a meaningless 
assignment nowadays. So you have to have this sort of yeah. proof of who you are and what you're doing tied to the individual rather than the location. Right. So the Scala proxy <laughs> that uses like 90 to 100 megabytes, yeah. you know, in a low traffic scenario, it's not really under load. It's just sitting there. It's just loaded all of these like Java class files and oh, suddenly it's like 100 megs. That sucks when you want to have one of those for every single container in the system. It's fine if you have one that runs on each machine. 100 megs isn't a big deal when you have a machine with like 512 gigabytes of RAM. That doesn't matter. I was going to say a silly number, and it was lower than... I was going to say like a silly number, like 64 gigs of RAM. And then I realized that you're talking about rack mount servers. Um, my desktop PC, my desktop PC has 64 gigs of RAM, and I barely use all of them. Fair. I'm still running 16 gigs on my laptop and feeling luxurious. <laughs> and nobody nobody needs that much RAM unless you're running hundreds of containers, which every single rack mount server is running hundreds of containers. And every single rack mount server, if each of those containers has like a 100 to 200, I don't know, maybe even like under a lot of load, maybe 512 megs of, of RAM for each of those proxies, that suddenly sucks a lot. So the two things you really want to get rid of are that high cost of running JVMs, and you want to get rid of the, the GC pauses that you get because you're running in a garbage collected environment. Yeah. I imagine those pauses, like you were saying, like I was the, the mental model I had when you talk about this cascading failure is is when people like pump their brakes in traffic. Yeah. Is that one person pumps their brake, the mm -hmm. person behind mm -hmm. them does, and then you get this five mile pileup of cars behind them because one person pumped their brakes yeah. once. Like And somehow it takes down like a root DNS server and now like your whole thing is just <laughs> fucked. And like that Facebook outage where they had to because they put their like door control system was like also hosted on the same infrastructure as the web app for some reason. They had like a guy with an angle grinder come in so they could even get into the data center they have to like cut the lock off the door yeah and when you do that that's that's not fun <laughs> so the gc pause and the rss the resident set size and these proxies have to be really small now they have to be really low latency more importantly they have to be predictably low latency right we would actually happily take another three uh, milliseconds in the in the average like 50 percent case in exchange for bringing the 99th percentile closer to the 50th percentile we would rather make it a little slower nobody notices a millisecond we'd rather bring it down we'd rather actually trade that common case performance for making the worst case closer to the common case but you know it also needs to be fast yeah that's one of those things that broke my brain when i started working in hard real-time systems is yes is like you will use different algorithms that have more prediction more predictable behavior because like you said you'd, you'd rather it always take five milliseconds yeah then it takes half a millisecond 99 percent of the time and then takes a second that other time because if you're if that's on like your critical path i have screwed this up sometimes <laughs> <laughs> if you're if you're talking about like on the critical path of like you stick your arm in something and a sensor is supposed to detect that so it turns the blades off. Right. You don't want one out of 100 times that to take yeah, a second yeah. because your hand's already in the blades at that point. Yeah. So you'd much rather like... Absolutely. Like I said, in, in like aviation and stuff like that, you'll throw twice as powerful of a CPU at it to just go, okay, it's always going to take five milliseconds, but we need it to take four. Right. Okay, well, you know, put a bigger CPU in it and it'll cost a buck extra, 
but we now know that this will never take more than four milliseconds or something like that. This is this is a very, very similar problem domain. You don't care about that as much for the actual application services, but you care about it immensely in this proxy layer that all the traffic is going through. It's like when people talk about high performance. High performance is one of those like yeah. words that means something. I say nothing, but mean? it really means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Yes. Whether you're talking about Absolutely. throughput or latency or resource usage or or all of those things can mean like you said jvm's great for things like throughput because your average case yeah is lovely but like you said if you're if you're really worried about latency then that becomes sometimes an entirely different mm-hmm. area of research well latency sort of is like the inverse of throughput or throughput is sort of the inverse of latency but they they tell you very different things when you're looking at latencies statistically you know that's something that's something very different and it's easy to lose these like extreme tail cases in throughput right where you say oh you know this does like a bunch of requests per second that's fucking great but like one of those requests takes like 50 times as long that's not as great are you saying we should eliminate spiders georg from the from the statistical analysis yes spiders georg is in fact like if if, (laughs) well here's the thing if you actually think about this this statistic spiders georg and like how many people in the world there are how many spiders georgs are there actually you know (laughs) if they're one in a billion then there's going to be at least seven of them out right there's seven guys So, so we care a lot about Spider's Georg and his spider consumption because in, in this world, you're actually going to meet that guy like every day. And this is sort of a strained metaphor. Anyway, that's how we got into Rust because we needed to, we needed to make these proxies smaller and we needed to eliminate garbage collection because there's, there's really no way to get around the GC pause, whether you write it in Go or Ruby or whatever. And we're not going to write it in Ruby for obvious reasons. You absolutely have to eliminate that. And our options were, well, we could all learn C++ or we could learn Rust. And we want to make a lot of promises about security because that's one of the big value adds of this software is that it's managing encryption and that it's managing like auth policy and who can talk to who is absolutely critical that this thing be like extremely secure. We're not going to learn C++. We're going to learn Rust. At the time when my company first started looking at rewriting this Scala thing in Rust and making like this whole new whole new proxy. So for reference, when was this? This was like um, this was around when I started. And actually, they one of the big reasons that I, I got the job that I have now was that I had learned both Scala and Rust and like could read. I was at least like passingly fluent in both of these languages out of college because I was sort of a programming languages nerd and I just like learned a bunch of weird programming languages that they don't actually teach you in college. So is this is this after 2015 or this is the company where I work was founded, I believe in either 2015 or 2016. I started around 2017. So about a year in. And that's when we are starting to invest in Rust. And at the time, the Rust async networking world was just sort of starting to become usable. Yeah, because 28 Teenish is yeah. when async landed, right? I believe. I think maybe 2019. Yeah. Um, so it was for the 2018 edition, right? I, I think that the async keyword was reserved in Rust 2018. I don't think that it was stabilized in Rust 2018. Okay. If, if memory serves. I, I'd have to <laughs> it's check. been a while. I mean, it has <laughs> been a while. It's been a couple years now, but this was before async await. 
This was way before Async Await. I definitely worked at Buoyant for like one or two years before Async Await. At that time, this ecosystem is like rapidly growing, but it's really not there. So like I worked actually, like I, I used to work with Carl Lerka from Tokyo. Um, I still work with him, but he no longer works for my employer. So we invested very, very heavily in all of the libraries that we needed to use to write this thing and continue to do so. And that's kind of a big percentage of, of my time goes into Tokyo and tracing, which is the diagnostics library that I kind of wrote. Uh, honestly, I don't like to, to tip my own hat for writing the whole logging library, but yeah, it's that in particular is kind of my tracing is cool beans. I mean, definitely like it's every time somebody says, Oh, it's great. All I can think of are all of the things that I wish I had done better or that I wish I could fix or that I want to add, but it, it is always very gratifying to hear that from everyone else. <laughs> Yeah, honestly, I, anytime you put up a new release or like a new demo of like, I, was, I remember a while back, I, I think it was you and someone else were working on basically like a yeah a, a yeah. top equivalent, but for async tasks. So in the same way that you'd, you'd monitor operating system tasks, you could look at all of these ephemeral mm -hmm. async tasks that were going on and seeing what your system is doing. Because this is one of those like at a certain scale, uh, uh, whether you're talking about virtual machines or containers or things like that, at some point, you just need to statistically wrangle right. all the stuff that you're doing. And when, you, when you're getting to the point where your single piece of software can be spinning up thousands of individual working tasks at the same time, mm -hmm. you got to figure out which one's causing problems. I think even if you're, yeah, you're talking, the thing you're talking about is Tokyo Console, which is sort of one of the projects of the, the Tokyo team that we would really like to make it a general purpose tool that you can plug into even some of the embedded focused async runtimes someday, because you're definitely right that this matters a lot when you have like these very large numbers of tasks. But I think that it just matters in general, because in this async world, scheduling is something that's happening inside of your program instead of at like the OS level and and it's cooperative scheduling so the tasks are are saying hey I want to yield now instead of the operating system going it's time for you to stop and because of that there are like a bunch of bugs that you can introduce by writing bugs in your code you can introduce like scheduling behaviors that are maybe not what you want in a way that you can't really when you're programming with threads and this applies in the world of like the big giant network applications where you can't use threads because every thread has a stack and those stacks take up too much memory and you can't handle like 10,000 connections that way. Or in the embedded world where you really don't have any notion of concurrency because you have a single core microcontroller that has like eight megs of RAM, but you need some way of having different things happening because you spend most of your time waiting because... This is one way that these worlds are very similar is that when you're talking to anything on the network, whether it's Ethernet or I2C or whatever, you spend a lot of time waiting for stuff to happen and you don't spend that much time doing math. That's one of those things that I had to teach. Like when I was teaching Rust. Yeah. That was one of those things that like when people always wanted to learn about async. And it was funny because I almost always spent very little time on async. And a lot of the time that I spent teaching was more about how to think about async. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like one of the first things that I was led with was it's important to understand the difference between concurrency and parallelism. Yes. And my my like my short explanation for that was parallelism is about working on many things at the same time. Mm -hmm. And concurrency is about waiting on multiple things at the same time where. Oh, was it you that said that? Because I have always 
always. Oh, I got it from someone else. I got it from someone else. Okay, well, I got I got it from someone else too. Okay, and I've always said something I heard someone say was this, and I thought that was really insightful. I certainly propagated. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, on embedded, that's one of those really important things because when you talk about a single core microcontroller, you can't work on multiple things at the same time. Exactly. But you're going to be waiting for a button press and a network packet and an LED to be done drawing or a screen to be done rendering. And that's one of those things where I find Rust is interesting because it helps sort of that weird wraparound of high performance computing to embedded systems where I was talking to someone on Twitter about this today, where it was in embedded systems, you have to be really careful about what you do because you have nothing, right? You, you just don't have the resources to do a lot, but on high performance computing or, or high performance servers and things like that, you have to be really careful with the resources you use, because like you said, there could be thousands of instances on exactly the same machine Yeah, and you end up running into the same problems. Yeah. You have a, a, disgusting amount of resources to use the problem but you just have a tiny shard of it though is the amount of stuff you need to do yeah. is even more colossal yeah. so you really you end up having exactly the same problem it's just that one of them involves a lot more statistics yeah yeah because instead of like one how bad can it get you go okay i got a thousand of these little gremlins that i need to take care of right any one of them can cause a problem for me if they decide to get unruly whether they just one my, my one gremlin can get rowdy but it's funny to listen to you describe yeah systems like this because like operating systems are wonderful because they give you a standard middle of the road wonderful way of handling things where as a developer you don't have to think about i don't have to write my own file system i don't have to write my own network driver i just give me a packet or give me a file or give me a, a thread time and things like that and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. embedded systems especially bare metal embedded systems are they're really just programs that are operating systems because when you have to do multiple things you schedule them yourself because you don't have an operating system or you can't afford an operating system mm -hmm. so you end up building just the bits of an operating system you need exactly whereas when i hear you talk about servers you're talking about user land scheduling and you're talking about user land drivers and even i've seen like mm -hmm. what is it mm -hmm. high frequency trading folks who will write their own user space networking stacks because they need to squeeze that last yeah. 0.001 of latency out because that means they make an extra million dollars this month mm -hmm. or something like that so it's it's so funny that we've wrapped around to the same yeah don't worry, operating system, I'll run the world for you world, but it's just on completely different ends of the, the spectrum. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I have two things to say in response to that observation, which I think is extremely insightful. One of them is that, well, you're absolutely right. And like one of the things that the people working on things like systems like Kubernetes, these distributed schedulers, is that people like to say that something like Kubernetes is an operating system for the whole data center right? That it's really doing exactly the same things an operating system does. It's managing access to limited resources. It's scheduling processes. And it's sort of ensuring that no one can do things that they're not supposed to be able to do, right? Those are like the operating system's three jobs, except that it's an operating system that's not for one computer, but for a whole massive building filled with computers. That observation is absolutely correct. Um, the other sort of question when you you were saying like, oh, people writing user space network stacks, you ever heard of DPDK? It doesn't ring a bell. DPDK is a very cool library from, from Intel that I'm kind of sad that I didn't actually get to use. 
Um, we sort of looked at using it for, for Linkerd, and then it turned out that it, it wasn't really friendly with the containerized world. But it's a, a kernel bypass networking library. And what it basically does is if you have like specific Intel NICs, you can like expose all of this like very low level NIC operations to user space software. Mm. So you can do like, I'm going to write out a TCP packet and I'm actually not going to do any context switch to do that. You can do like DMA of like NIC buffers directly into user memory. And maybe you do like one syscall to say, hey, I want to be able to do this, mm. right? And once you've done that syscall, you never have to talk to the OS again. Uh, and we look- It's like a mutex lock. You, you lock the mutex once. Yeah, exactly. You get exclusive of access and then it's your shenanigans until you're done with your shenanigans. Right. We we sort of looked into using DPDK uh, and trying to bind it to Rust actually quite early on, I think back in like 2017. Uh, it turns out that the it was not really easy to do this in the like heavily containerized cloud world because it really relies on direct access to like you got to actually have one of the like three like enterprise Intel NICs and like you maybe do have that in, in your server, but you're like running in a VM on that server and maybe that VM has another VM in it. And in that VM, you're in a container. And by that point, you have no idea which like NIC you have. Uh, and also maybe the application gets scheduled on a machine that has like a different NIC from a different, like a Broadcom NIC yeah. or something. that's also like a big enterprise NIC, but it doesn't work with DPDK. But I think that like the HFT folks are using like this kernel bypass stuff mm. uh, very heavily. And I, I think th I've always thought it was very cool. And this actually gets into um, one of my sort of spare time interests, which is like my, my first love. My first love has always been operating systems. Mm. Um, actually, ever since I was like just a little kid, I've been interested in operating systems. Wait, like probably like younger than most people are aware of operating <laughs> systems. Um I was a nerdy kid. Yeah, I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I played a lot of like, um, I remember being a kid and I loved like SimCity and like Railroad Tycoon and those kinds of like infrastructure games. I've always loved infrastructure. I was going to say it was SimCity, Lemmings, and Duke Nukem for me. Yeah. Gotcha. Oh, we, 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 we could have been friends as kids. <laughs> I probably would have been on my computer. Yeah. I mean, same. Right. That's, that's where I'm going with this. And so I love these games. I remember I had a, a friend who was also like a very nerdy kid who loved trains. And, and I, we were like hanging out and we were playing Railroad Tycoon. We were having a great time. And he was like, oh, I'll burn you a CD of Railroad Tycoon. And so like you can play it at home and then like we can hang out and talk about, okay, so he burns me a CD and I'm, I'm maybe like nine or 10 years old and I go home. It turns out um, my family, all of the computers in the house are Macs. My dad in a sort of past career was a, a graphic designer. So he like was first introduced to computers on like the early Macintosh. And so my, my family's always been a Macintosh household. I have the CD and then I have like some of my other like Mac games that I like to play, you know, and I take this CD and I put it in my computer and um, I don't get Railroad Tycoon. What I get instead is like a whole bunch of files that I've never seen before and I don't understand, right? Because it's a Windows version of Railroad Tycoon. And that was when I learned, I, I was like, a lot of kids would have just been like frustrated and then given up, you know? For me, this was like the most fascinating thing I had seen in my entire life. <laughs> this blew my mind. Someone has put a challenge in front of me. Yeah, but also it just like it revealed to me that there's this whole world of stuff that's going on, all of this infrastructure, right? And I'm fascinated by machines and how things work and complex systems. 
And I'm like, oh, this is like a very fascinating system that happens to have gotten in the way of me playing the game. But then I like just spend all of this time like looking at all of these weird files. And I think I opened some like Windows executables on my Mac and they open in like uh, a text editor and they just look like garbage. And this is like magic to me. This cracked my brain open. And ever since then, I have been like really fascinated with by operating systems. And like, I remember being a college student, that was like my favorite class in college. And I just like, I've always wanted to do like OS stuff. And so I love my job working on a bunch of cool things that in many ways gets kind of close to this space. But my my first love has always been, I want to write an operating system. I actually specifically want to write an operating system for the desktop computing use case, okay. which is the one that like no one is ever going to write a new operating system for. Like the hardware is pretty standardized, but there's so much of it. And so the like the cost of getting started is like very, very high. And there are now like some of these experimental OS projects or like even not just experimental, but like new operating systems are being written for like for embedded platforms for like some of the sort of in-between embedded and real computer platforms like phones, right? Like you have Android, iOS or sort of like these. And but even even those systems sort of have like iOS kernel is like mock right? Which mm. is the same kernel as, as Mac OS. Yeah. And Mach was like a, a research project from some university from many, many years ago that just sort of has had more and more stuff glued onto it. And I think that kind of sucks. I think somebody <laughs> should just like write a totally new experimental operating system that like all of this stuff dates back, like kernel technology has has changed a bit since the 90s but it's it's kind of the same um and you just kind of keep piling more and more abstractions on top but the like fundamental thing has not really ever been just like radically reevaluated that's kind of always been my like my first love and i have this hobby project that like obviously none of us are ever going to be running on our pcs because it's like my hobby project and i work on it about one weekend every month i have the time to like actually hack on it mycelium 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 yeah mycelium yeah i've heard it pronounced both ways so i i think i think you can I've actually heard like a mycologist pronounce it mycelium, oh, but nice. I've also heard a mycologist pronounce it mycelium. <laughs> That's one of those things that breaks your brain with the internet is everyone's yeah. like, oh no, it's pronounced like this. And then you're like, well, it's a Latin word. It's pronounced like this. And then right. you get someone else who says, oh, but. Also, we don't actually know what real Latin sounds like <laughs> because we only know what church Latin yeah. sounds like. And church Latin is like different from Latin as the Romans spoke it. So who knows? It doesn't matter. But yeah, in, in the in the sort of glorious ideal post-revolution, I actually like I love my job a lot. If we live in this world where like we have universal basic income in this like hypothetical post-scarcity future, I would work on mycelium full time. But I actually really do enjoy what I do for my day job. With that said, this is what I would love to spend all of my time on. Uh, and I think that that would be the only way that it would get to a point where people would actually run it on their PCs. So you mentioned you really like the idea of radical reimagining. What does it, what is your like, well, I, I can tell you, so I'm working on a little OS problem too. And I can tell you what like my radical reevaluation was, but I'd love to hear like, what was your, no damn it, we're going to do it this way in my OS. Yeah. Like what was your that? Well, we came, I, I thinking about some of the stuff I know you're working on. I think we have come at it from, very different directions that I think are both really interesting. Like I'm building mycelium, I'm targeting primarily x86, 64-bit. So I'm just saying, I'm not gonna think at all about the hardware. I'm gonna assume we're gonna all use the same Intel hardware that I already have in my house. 
And someday I'd like to target like ARM desktop CPUs as well as RISC-V someday, but I haven't really written like the hardware abstraction layer for those systems. Um, and I have an x86 machine and I would like to be able to run my operating system on it. <laughs> but the thing that is like, uh, there are a couple things. And one of them is I remember being a college student taking operating systems course. The professor sort of is telling us about monolithic kernels and he's telling us about microkernels. He's talking about all of these different ways that microkernels are just better in every possible way, right? Like from an engineering standpoint, this is like just a much smarter and much more elegant way to design the system. So I, I'm like, okay, professor, like I raise my hand and I'm like, what oper- what like commonly used operating systems today are microkernels? And the professor goes, oh, none of them are. Like, absolutely none of them. They are all... Microkernels are the graphene of the computer science world. They can do anything except for leave the lab. Right. So so microkernels, like true microkernels have never been tried, right? It's it's like like true socialism has never been tried. (laughs) You know, there is no... I guess maybe the closest thing, like GNU heard, never went anywhere. Mock sort of started out as a research microkernel, mm. but then like when it became the Mac OS kernel, like most of the stuff was moved back into kernel space to make it a monolithic kernel. So for the folks who aren't familiar, the, the difference between a macro kernel and a microkernel, how would you like delineate those two, at least from a purity standpoint? Right. So the idea is that the the fundamental idea is that you have all of these drivers, right? And a kernel a kernel is doing a few things. It's process scheduler. It's providing some abstractions like for interprocess communication. It's providing a system call layer, stuff like that. It's also managing user programs accessing hardware, right? And those are sort of the jobs of the operating system. One of the problems with hardware is that it turns out there's like a shitload of it. Turns out, <laughs> right? Like the world is full of hardware, and like a it turns out, and it turns out that like a bunch of people make hardware and all of those people that make hardware make a bunch of different devices. You know, we have all of these nice standards that make like every hard drive sort of seems like every other hard drive, every graphics card. I don't know. You plug a cord in the back you plug it into your monitor, it just sort of fucking works. But drivers are the software that actually makes that happen. I, the way that you write a driver is you get like a big three ring binder from a hardware manufacturer <laughs> and it says like, here's how you talk to the hardware. And then you sit down and you like drink a bunch of coffee and you write all of this like code that just does like these weird incantations that make the hardware work. You just describe my job. Um, and then it turns out that, right. And then it turns out the the three ring binder from the hardware guys actually lies. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so then you have like um, <laughs> one of my favorite, I think my favorite comment in all of Linux I don't know if you've seen this. It's for um, like the driver for a specific real time clock, and it turns out that like this is like a like a multi paragraph comment that's just like in some C file in the Linux kernel, and the comment is essentially that like something about how like you know there's the Gregorian calendar, and then there's the Julian calendar, and then there's the like whatever the name of the hardware manufacturer calendar is, which is like different from the Gregorian <laughs> calendar because they got like I think that they like got the order of the months wrong or something, mm. or like one of the 
months has too many days. It's just like impossible to fix that because this is all like implemented in silicon that you can never change. And so a bunch of PC motherboards just have this real-time clock that like the manufacturer documentation says that it just gives you the correct date. But it turns out that if it's a certain month, it just actually doesn't give you the correct date because they fucked it up. And there's like no way for them to fix it. <laughs> and now they can't change it because it would break someone's code that has the driver that right. yeah. break every other operating system that does this. And like, they already made like the, the masks yeah. for doing like lithography to make this thing. And it's just like, well, <laughs> you're, it's impossible to change now. So now Linux has to handle the like Gregorian calendar and also the like whichever hardware manufacturer calendar. And you're just stuck with this. Yeah. I, like the hardware that I'm working on is, is Nordic. It's the NRF 52. Love their chips. Mm -hmm. But like mm -hmm. anyone else, they have these hardware errata that you're talking about where like right. it was supposed to do something and, and it does not. But they've already made a million of these chips and it's not like you can firmware update yeah. the silicon because like you said, it's lithography. It's been etched into the silicon. Like, what are you going to do? Right. And they have one. So they have this QSPY, which is like the way you can have an external memory chip. And there's this functionality called XIP, which is execute in place, mm -hmm. which says like, hey, you can read from this external flash chip as if it was the built-in flash chip. And yeah, there's occasionally you'll have to, some latency from when you're pulling from it. But like other than that, we'll map it to your address space. You can treat it like it's local storage. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. But they have this errata. Like I was loading a program and I was doing something like reading. I was, I was doing like a CRC on it, or I think I was doing like a cryptographic signature on it to make sure that it loaded correctly. Mm -hmm. And I was reading from it and mm -hmm. the signature was loading correctly, but the signature that I calculated in the memory was wrong. Oh boy. And I was like, uh -huh. that's weird. Like, did I corrupt my memory or something? And then I went in like in a different way. I dumped the memory, mm -hmm. recalculated on my desktop, checked out totally fine. <laughs> and I go, that's weird. Yeah, was troubleshooting that for like two days. And then I went and found and they say, oh, if you do a branch operation right after you read from XIP, <laughs> the the cache will be wrong for three cycles. Oh, there's a delay slot, right? There's there's like a delay slot that the hardware doesn't handle. So it read like it just basically while it was reading this 16 or 32 kilobytes of programmage it just hiccuped yep and cryptographic signatures do not like hiccups right. they they go well no that was not the correct value but <laughs> this is one of those things where i like beat my head i was like did i do the unsafe code wrong did i do yeah this wrong did i configure the hardware wrong? nope just don't hold it that way is very much like yeah it turns out that there's just a hardware bug yeah. and the hardware bug is impossible to fix yeah. so the way we fixed it is we put in the documentation says so, say so, you know don't do the thing that triggers the hardware bug yeah which is really annoying when the thing that you bought the chip for is the right. thing that they say not to do a lot of the <laughs> yeah. times. This is like one of the classic, like just dead, stupid x86 things. Uh, x86 is filled with like just dumb shit. I think largely because it's been around for a very long time. It was like the 8086 was like the first like VLSI like microprocessor on one chip. It's been around since the dawn of time and all of the like dumb shit has like just accumulated. And that's why it's like by far the worst instruction set architecture that people still use. Hold on, I could go on yeah. and on about x86, but I still want to hear what your what your claim to differentiation. Oh, before we you want to go back deep, to my ceiling. You mentioned yeah. you have. I, I want to, yeah, I want to know about your operating system because I know how cursed x86 is. But okay, right. 
So, so there are a couple of things that I want to do with mycelium um, that I think are kind of fun. And one of them is, okay, so I'm this college kid and I'm hearing about microkernels and how they're like virtuous, right? And how in the like ideal, like af- someday after the revolution, when we're all like beautiful and wealthy, we're going to have these microkernel operating systems that are going to be so stable that like your computer's never going to crash. Like a, a driver bug cannot corrupt operating system memory and like all of these like wonderful things and it just seems like ideologically pure right and i think that it is meantime we have gotten operating systems that are now like much more stable i have never in the last like five ten years i've very very rarely seen a kernel panic they've all happened on mac os as a side note specifically the like apple ioh um ahci kernel extension uh has like a weird bug in it that sometimes when you bring your MacBook up from, from sleep. If you have the wrong MacBook, it, the whole kernel just crashes. Oh, cool. But that, so that has afflicted me. But besides that, like you don't see these like blue screen of death kernel panics happen nearly as much as you used to. And I think that they have fixed these or like reduced the frequency that these things occur through just like getting better at engineering. Computer scientists hate that you can solve problems by getting better at engineering. (laughs) It's sort of like, you know, computer scientists hate that, like, well, there are some advantages to using a linked list. um, And there are like advantages to using like an array based list. And if you use the linked list, there are like things that you might get, and that it might actually be better in some ways. And like, oh, I wrote the like, there's a, a fun paper that I found, like, just browsing through like archive, which is called like, resizable arrays in optimal time and space. Uh, and it's like implementing like a VEC type where you have this resizable array and they have this like proof that their design, which you do like a bunch of math every time you like resize the array and you, the array and you allocate new chunks by doing all of this math. And they have this proof that's like this, this very cool algorithm that we came up with, like minimizes the number of reallocations to grow the array. So you spend less time allocating and you spend less time like mem copying and it's so much better. I wrote this, I like implemented this paper, like exactly the way that it says to in the paper. Um, I wrote a bunch of benchmarks that compare my thing with like the Rust standard library VEC. VEC is always fast. <laughs> um, and then I like took all of the moon math out. I commented it all out and I replaced it with like if double some, some, or something like that. Well, I replaced it with like some bit twiddling tricks okay. because I realized that like, okay, they're doing all of this stuff, but actually you can just do like binary log two and it's almost the same. I replaced it with that. My thing is now only like 10% worse than standard library VEC. It turns out that it's just impossible to ever beat VEC because even, even if you are pushing a bunch and it has to grow a lot, Putting in an extra pointer dereference that you have to do to push, like, actually just kills you every time. There's no way to beat it. Is it just cash? Like, is that just one of those, like... Yeah, yes. Order of magnitude between L3 and main mem? No mem. Well, also, like, the allocator is just, like, faster than (laughs) you want it to be. Like, it would be very cool if, like, J.E. Malik was, like, bad, Mm. you know? Because then I could do, like, all of these very cool hacks to avoid having to Malik ever. And that would be, like, great because then all of this stuff would be worth doing. 
Uh, but it turns out that it's basically not worth doing. Anyway, so I, this is sort of what happened to the microkernel. I think that they made the like modern operating systems crash a lot less, and they don't have these, like, a driver bug takes the whole thing down. And I think that's largely just because people got better at programming. Hmm. Uh, you know, like, I think the solution for this was just, like, stop writing shitty C code and stop having, like, one out-of-bound write that just, like, clobbers kernel memory. Like, maybe don't do that anymore. There's also been a lot of, like, hardware advancement where, like, yes. hardware has certain, like, protection and stuff like that where you you stop imagining that you're all in a certain linear address space yeah. and, like, you can't just trounce out from driver memory to that and you have absolutely MMU protection and even, like, IOMMU yeah. for things like PCIe and things like that where... Yeah, I think that the thing that maybe stopped us from actually going down this, like, GNU herd, like beautiful microkernel future where everything is in user space and you just do all of this IPC. I think the thing that really fixed that is like RWX. I think that just like when the like x86 CPUs grew like a read, write and execute bit. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. You know, like yeah. this basically all just went away. And if you do like a, a read on a write only page or you do like a write on a read only page, you try to execute code from a read and write page that doesn't have the execute bit. You try to do that and you get like a CPU exception that you can trap. Mm. And if you can trap it, you can just kill that driver and keep going. Yeah. You know, and that this kind of defeated the like beautiful dream of like the, the microkernel where everything is like totally isolated and independent, uh, which sucks because it's like ideologically pure and it just seems like very nice and cool. So one of the things that I wanted to do is I was like, I'm going to write a microkernel operating system because if I'm going to do this as a hobby project, if I'm just going to do this thing for fun, I'm going to do it the right way, the way that my computer science professor told me was the right way and not the way that people do it in the real world where they actually have to like make shit that works and they actually just have one kernel that's been copied around a million times and like X and U is just mock, which is like someone's research project from 1995. What if instead of doing that, we just did it right from the ground up? Because it doesn't actually matter if there are like problems with that approach, because I'm just doing this for fun, because I'm insane. So that's thing one. The other thing is, you know, I had done like a operating system project in college, in my spare time that actually like kind of caused me to flunk out of linear algebra because I don't give a shit about linear algebra, but I love <laughs> operating systems. And so I spent all of my time when I was supposed to be doing linear algebra homework, writing my operating system. And I got like really far and I was doing like all of this neat stuff. And then I got to the point where it's like, okay, I want to actually like load and run a user binary. And if I want to do that, I need to have system calls. And so I kind of am faced with this choice, which is, do I want to just take all of the system calls that are in POSIX? Right, the portable operating system standard that specifies like the Unix system calls that all Unix operating systems have. And then, of course, there's like extra non-standard ones piled on top of that. They're like Linux and Mac OS are actually different. They can't just run any Unix binary because Mac OS is sort of a BSD and Linux is not sort of a BSD because it's Linux. And you like and there's like ePoll and like now IOU ring and like all of these different like cool Linux features that are not standardized. But there's like this POSIX thing where hypothetically you can just take like a normal C compiler and tell it, hey, please compile this binary and like only use the POSIX syscalls don't use any of the like weird Linux ones and you can do that and then you can run this thing on like your toy operating system in theory um, but the downside of that is that you have to use POSIX yeah. right and POSIX is this thing that was invented in like 1970 <laughs> like this interface was specified like a billion years ago and I am this like 
angry, hot-headed kid. I have a problem with authority. I still do. Uh, I think that I've chilled down, I chilled out a little bit. Like, whatever, I'm an anarchist. But like, here's me in college. I have like an extreme problem with authority and I'm kind of arrogant and I'm like drinking a lot of coffee and I've learned about all of the things that are broken in the world in computing that like all of this old stuff from the 70s, like Linux is like, or like Unix is from the 70s and Linux is just Unix and Mac OS is just Unix. This Unix thing, this is from a totally different time where everyone did everything wrong and they're all stupid and I'm smarter than them and I can do it better. And so that's sort of the attitude that I have in college but the sort of downside of that is, okay, if I don't do POSIX, I have to invent my own system call interface. Mm. And if I invent my own system call interface, I have to like make my own libc if I want to compile programs. Or if I don't like libc, and I don't, right, because I'm this kid who hates like everything from 1970, <laughs> you know, like we can do it right now. Well, I don't want to write my own libc. Well, if you don't want to write your own libc, you basically have to, not only do you have to make the whole operating system, which is like a pretty big, pretty tall order. Okay. You know, like now draw the rest of the owl kind of thing. Not only do you have to draw the rest of the owl, but you also have to like make the entire like programming language and compiler tool chain to run any kind of user space binary, or you're going to handwrite an assembly. Right. So if you make your own system call layer, mm -hmm. like now you have just like quadrupled the amount of work you have to do. <laughs> and that like appeals to my sense of honor that I would yeah. really, really like to have this like computer that is like running a program that I wrote on an operating system that I wrote. And that program was written in a language that I designed in a compiler that I implemented. But it's also sort of like if I work on this operating system every weekend, we'll be done by 2070. Um, it's probably I'm going to be like 95. Yeah, I'm going to be like 95. And it's still like, sort of going to work and not really be useful. Even if we set aside the whole you also have to make the programming language and the compiler and the compiler tool chain, and the system call abstraction, all this other stuff. Uh, so that was kind of a bummer for me when I figured this out. But the thing that changed a few years ago is WASM. WASM became like this very cool new thing. And WASM is like WebAssembly. I think a lot of the podcast listeners are like Rust folks who've probably at least heard of this. Um, and it's like very cool. And oh, it's like something you can compile your programs to instead of JavaScript and they can run in the browser. That's great. But then it turns out that people want to compile programs and like run them in places other than just the web browser. And so now they need some kind of interface for like, what do I do if I want to open files or talk to the network or all of these things that like web browsers maybe don't let you do, or they have their own APIs for doing. But if you're just like a normal program, you have to do all of this stuff. And so a bunch of people from like the WASM, a bunch of WASM people come up with this thing, WASI, which is like the WebAssembly system interface. And it is sort of like a system call interface for WebAssembly programs that specifies like here are the syscalls that you might do. Mm -hmm. And it's a bit nicer than POSIX, at least it's newer. And it, it sort of has this idea of like capability-based security. So in theory, it's like maybe more secure. And it, it's sort of like POSIX, actually, if you look at it, like a lot of the names were sort of directly inherited. We come with biases as, as people who have learned things over the last years. Yeah. 
And it's also like, what else do you call the read syscall? You know, you're not going to call it like... Obtain um, bytes. I, I don't know. Maybe you work for Microsoft and you're working on Windows and you're going to call <laughs> yes. it like read bytes from or like some bullshit like that. But like, what are you going to call it? It's read. So in some ways they're kind of similar, but at least it's like this newer thing that's like being actively developed and it's not so stable because every computer in the world has it, you know? So it's like, at least it's a little newer and more exciting. And the other sort of interesting thing is that you have this WebAssembly thing and you have this like binary format that is not machine code, right? Like no actual computer runs WebAssembly, no hardware does. And it's probably impossible to make hardware that runs it because some <laughs> things that WebAssembly does are like not really easily representable in Silicon, but it's this like kind of cool format. And that's interesting. And then the other sort of very cool thing is a project that I think that started out at, at Fastly a company where, you know, it just so happens that several of my friends work, not like plugging fastly on the podcast, but they're working on this kind of cool thing. And I'm talking to somebody who's working on it. I, I believe I'm talking to Adam Foltzer, who is a great guy. You should have him on the show sometime. He's very smart. Um, and I'm talking to Pat Hinkey, who also works at Fa Adam's boss, and they work at Fastly. And this is like before everyone knows about this thing, but they start telling me about this thing they're working on, which is it's an ahead of time compiler for WebAssembly. And this is now what ends up being called Lucid. And uh, it's like they okay. use it in their like serverless offering and everyone knows about this. But this is a couple years ago. And it is like, I think that it was a, it's sort of an open secret. It hasn't been like officially announced yet. And they're telling me about this thing and about how cool it is because what it's doing is it's giving you like native performance, essentially. It, it's giving you native performance, but it also has the sort of advantage of, uh, it has like all of these nice isolation advantages that WebAssembly gives you. You know, like this capability-based system call interface, WASI, and it has like WebAssembly has this idea of linear memory, and it just like has nice ways for sort of managing the address space of the program. And it also has this sort of feature that you can take a lot of languages, compile them to WebAssembly, and like those different compile tooler chains can all make WebAssembly. So it, it has some of the advantages of the VM or interpreter that you you know some of the different nice things about that, but you can also just go and make native code mm. and the native code can run with like native code performance. And so they're telling me about this thing and I'm thinking about, oh, I want to write another operating system. And I was sort of thinking that because I, I missed working on my operating system, but I didn't want to figure out the syscall problem. And so all of these things create sort of a perfect storm in my head where I realize, well, I don't have to write you know, I don't have to specify this whole syscall interface if I use this thing that the WASM people are working on. And I can do this kind of, okay, oh, this is where it starts to get interesting. One of the problems with the with microkernels, one of the reasons that we're not all living in this like glorious microkernel future, microkernels have a lot of context switch overhead, mm, right? Because you're always swapping between the user space, the kernel. You're always swapping between the user space and the kernel. Basically, you go from two entities you have to jump in between to three entities you have to jump in between. Right. And like all of these drivers are talking to each other by IPC. It's really, really hard to do any kind of IPC where you don't jump from like process A into the kernel, into process B, back to the kernel, back to process A. 
you know, like that's a lot of context switches you have to do. And like, I had just written an operating system. I'm smart. I know about like pushing registers on the stack. I know about all of this stuff. That's a lot of registers you have to push on the fucking stack. And you're just doing this all the time. And there's no way to not do it. It's like when you look at your perf graphs and you're like, yeah, oh, wonder why everything is mem copy in my perf graph. Right. And actually around the same time, this is when, um, this is a couple years ago. I'm like still kind of a young, dumb kid. I'm like, like 24. And some of the smarter people than me at my job, like uh, Carl Erka, Sean MacArthur, who are sort of like big names in Rust, they are reading about this DPDK thing around the same time, talking about how like cool and exciting it is to be able to do this kernel bypass networking. And then, oh, it's sad that we can't actually use this because of Kubernetes. But it like just sounded so awesome to me as like this kid who just like loves making things go fast. All of this gives me the like really dumb idea. You know, we could actually make a microkernel where all of these these drivers are like these totally self-contained demons that just talk to each other over like principled IPC primitives if we didn't actually make a microkernel. If we actually ran all of this, like the, the, the idea is that you have like in hardware, you have these protection rings, you have like kernel mode and user mode and switching between them is really expensive. And you have these different stacks and you have all of this stuff going on. And it's like quite expensive to, to switch between these rings. What if we actually like didn't do some of that? What if we took some of these protection, the, these sort of isolation features that the, uh, the hardware is offering us and we just like did that in, in software instead? Some more compile time rather than runtime sort of things. Right. And so the idea that I sort of had is you can have user mode drivers. And I did big air quotes for the, the people listening from home. This is an audio podcast. James yeah. saw the air quotes, but nobody nobody else saw my air quotes. So that's maybe I shouldn't have done that. You can take you can have all of these nice modular, restartable, hot reloadable user mode drivers, and then you can just sort of bin pack them all into kernel space and put them at like different offsets in kernel space. And you get the isolation benefits by taking the only kind of thing that the system can run. It doesn't run like ELFs, it runs WebAssembly modules and you submit them to the kernel as WebAssembly. And the kernel compiles the WebAssembly to real code with something like Lucid. And that the reason that that, that has to happen in kernel space is because one, it, it it's a trust boundary, right? You have to actually trust the compiler to not have taken this like code in the high level language and compiled something evil. You have to trust that. So it has to be within that trust perimeter of the kernel. Also, the kernel is the only one that knows its own address space. So like you can you can have your compiler take the WebAssembly linear memory and then just figure out, oh, I want this at this offset and I'm just going to add that constant or like add these pages to like every time I like when I compile that binary, I'm just going to go, OK, I'm just, like zero is actually like seven, five F hmm. or whatever. And I can just pack all of that stuff into one address space. I can do IPC, IPC. Air quotes. My IPC abstraction. Yeah, I did air quotes again. My IPC abstraction can actually just be shared memory, you know, and then you can inject these syscalls as like all of these things are doing system calls, but the system calls are really just jumping to a different part of the kernel. So you move the interpreter, well, both a compiler, like an ahead of time compiler and the interpreter or the runtime into the kernel. 
so that essentially people pre-submit their kernel modules. Yeah. The kernel, I guess at that point, decides whether it likes it or not right. and either rejects it or accepts it. But then once it sort of gets past that layer, then yeah. it's just an interpreted piece of software. So but it's not interpreted. It's running it's running as 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 real code. And it kind of has to be because you have these like like the idea is that this is for drivers, mm. but the idea is also what if that was just the whole execution model? And maybe you have a few different modes depending on like how much you trust that binary, everything is being submitted to the kernel that you want to run as a WebAssembly module. That's just the only way stuff goes in. But depending on how you want to spawn that module, you might spawn it in like one of several ways. You might run it in a WASM interpreter, like a VM that's just like executing the WebAssembly directly. You might run that WASM interpreter inside the kernel in ring zero, you might run it in user space in ring three because we don't care about the other two rings because nobody uses them because they don't really do anything because they're kind of one of those stupid vestigial things in x86 that nobody cares about. So you have two rings. <laughs> uh, so you might you might be running them in an interpreter. You might be doing ahead of time compilation. And maybe if you're doing ahead of comp time compilation in the kernel, you might have some kind of caching mechanism so you don't do that every time. Maybe you have like a cryptographic signature or a hash that you use to determine like, is this actually the, the thing that I compiled already? And I can just reuse that compiled artifact. But that's sort of an engineering problem to figure out later. But the like sort of really cool thing that you can do is that you, you have this sort of flexibility in how you're running this stuff. If you want maximum performance, you put it in kernel space. And then it's very fast because it never has to do a context switch. Obviously, WASM gives you some isolation guarantees. Mm. doesn't give you the same ones as hardware. Stuff like Spectre and Meltdown can still happen because these things are running in one address space. So you, you, you maybe don't want to run every binary that way. But the ones that you are giving a higher level of trust to, like your device drivers, yeah, you can just put them all in kernel space, make them basically free to jump between. And then maybe if you want to run less trusted applications, you could run them in a VM in the kernel so that they can't really do anything evil, but they're still like running in kernel space. There's some performance penalty for that. Or maybe you could run them in user space. And maybe in user space, what you could do is you can bin pack different binaries together into one process, mm. right? Because you're back to your buddy system. You can do this, you can do this sort of virtual memory magic or you or linear memory like wasm linear memory you can do this like oh a cool thing about WebAssembly. every wasm module actually says hey here's how much ram i'm going to use like it says ahead of time when it starts like some of its metadata is i want this much linear memory mm -hmm. okay well you can map that to a fixed offset you can make an address space that bin packs a bunch of different modules together and now IPC between those programs is also free, yeah. right? Because you're jumping from one program into another one. You don't have to go to kernel space and back. Yeah. You only have to go to kernel space when you want to talk to a driver. It's a smaller, it's a smaller context jump. Okay, that's kind of cool. This is something interesting. And this is sort of the idea of mycelium. And someday it's going to do that stuff. You want to know what it does right now? What does it do right now? Well, it has a WebAssembly module. Okay. Um, and that WebAssembly module prints the string Hello World. And right now the Hello World WebAssembly module is sort of hard-coded into the kernel. <laughs> and so I have... We're in a remarkably similar state. Yeah. Like I, I don't have an interpreter. Like mine runs in user space. Right. But all it does, the only application I have right now is hard-loaded into the kernel and it prints loop back from virtual port zero to virtual port one. Yeah. So I actually have a unit test. Oh, nice. Um, and my, oh, I, this is a cool thing. This is something I'm kind of 
very pleased with myself with that I had some help from a friend on it that we, we sort of, this was a cool project. Um, but so what I have is I have a unit test and when my unit test runs, it runs this hello world binary. The syscall for writing to like a, a file descriptor is sort of hard coded so that if the file descriptor is standard out mm-hmm. and if it's called with the string hello world, it makes the unit test pass. <laughs> that's like extreme mocking. Right. And then, and, and then, and then the program exits. Uh, and that's what mycelium does. So I've been sitting here. Yeah stewing on well actually well, i don't know well actually but i'm gonna hit you with a lightning round yeah of statements that i want your gut response to either like oh yeah no that's that's wrong or, or things like that okay well some of these might also be like things that in my head i filed away as i'm gonna solve that problem once i actually get to it sure but yeah just fuck me up let's go okay 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 i love that we started the conversation talking about the problems of java mm-hmm. and in my brain wazi and wasm are like next-gen Java in that you have a language that has a portability interface. Java calls it bitcode. Right. Wazi calls it uh, that. They both have a pre-compiled and an interpreted mode. We started the conversation talking about the unacceptable overhead of Java, and we ended the conversation talking about how Wazi helps you achieve the future of yeah. uh, microkernel operating systems, even though they're using the same techniques. Just, But, I mean, to be fair, there's a lot of yeah. learned learned answers in 30 years of engineering. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, this is a great question, actually. One of the big differences between like, okay, so th- th- there's two things that I'm going to I'm gonna say right now. I, I did say like that the JVM is actually very fast, that it is not, you don't have this like interpreter overhead of like every single instruction is actually executed by a bunch of compiled code that's running in real life because it has like a JIT and the JIT is very, very good actually. Like the hotspot JIT is like one of the most incredible pieces of engineering that has ever been done by a corporation with more than like four employees. It's like V8. Yeah. Throw enough engineering power at something and you will make. Yeah. Despite all odds, you will make something that is astounding. Uh, Yeah. JVM hotspot is actually often faster than native code because, you know, it maybe is a smarter because it's doing like JIT compilation. It's like profiling things as they run and it might actually be able to compile things better than like GCC. In some cases, the problem with the JVM is that it's loading all of this bytecode into memory, right? Like one of its problems is actually its usage of memory. Is that not the case for WebAssembly? Well, it's loading all of this bytecode into memory. And then as that bytecode executes in an interpreter, it's doing this JIT compilation. And the way that you do JIT compilation is you say, hey, to the kernel, I need like a page that is executable. Give me an executable page. And then you start writing machine code to the executable page. And then you start executing that machine code. You know, you jump to that address, you run that code. And so what this sort of means is that you are doing, you're loading the Java class files, which are Java bytecode that you can execute on your VM. And then as you JIT them, you are also allocating more memory and putting machine code in it. That's one thing. Another thing is just that having all of this JIT machinery, like this is also a program. This is also part of the process. And like the actual VM is also in memory. So you're using a bunch of memory for that. You're using a bunch of memory for the classes. And then you're using even more memory for like the actual JIT versions of those classes. The goal with my... But doesn't Java have a pre-compiled version too? Like yeah. I, it's been a long time since... I haven't done Java since like first year of university so like i haven't touched in forever i don't think that it like really does like you you compile things to java bytecode okay um actually scala has a compiler pipeline that gives you 
they go straight to native code, mm. which I think is kind of cool. It's called Scala native. Mm. I don't, I would not personally use it because Rust gives me all of the things that I like about Scala right. and Scala native doesn't give me all of the things I like about Rust. It, like Scala native is an unsafe language. It does not have yeah. compile time safety, but it also has like- It goes down to LLVM, right? Or is it emitting like C code that gets- I believe that it goes straight to LLVM. Okay. I don't remember though. I haven't looked. And then it also has all of the language features about Scala that I think are bad. <laughs> like implicit. Like every, uh, everyone dividing their own operators for everything? I, I don't think that one's bad. That one's fine. Oh, okay. It's the implicit conversions that are evil. The way okay. that they work is evil. I mean, they're actually more principled than any other language with implicit conversions, but they're still kind of fucked up. Uh, it doesn't matter. Yeah, so Scala Native is very, very interesting. It also sort of seems like a version of Rust that's kind of worse. <laughs> uh, like it, it gives me some of the same things, but it also gives me like less of them. But anyway, that doesn't matter. I don't know how we got on the subject of Scala Native. I that's my fault. Well, I've got I've got the next thing that I you yeah. you said I don't think WebAssembly will ever run on hardware. Are you familiar with what Giselle is? Giselle is the the ARM Java instructions. Yeah, I was going to say so. Or JavaScript instructions, right? Uh, Java. Yeah. Well, now okay. they have both. Now they have Giselle was that. So, like back in the day of ARM v five, which I worked on surprisingly recently because embedded systems never die. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it has something like hardware acceleration for like a hundred and fifty of the two hundred yeah. bit code operations that you can do, and it, it's for exactly that reason. Is for tiny little devices where you want to run your your mm -hmm. java application you want it to run reasonably fast so they just have a hardware acceleration so i mean it's funny because you mentioned oh it'll never happen for WebAssembly, but if it gets big enough just like javascript has these same like i, mean, I guess all right well turns out we spend all of our cpu doing this one macro op in javascript might as well add two more instructions for it right yeah, and so you now have like floating point multiply, or it's like fuse multiply and add JavaScript version. Yeah, and it's like IEEE, yeah, it's like... <laughs> which is just like a special instruction that has like whatever the JavaScript semantics are instead of whatever the hardware semantics are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so the Giselle thing actually... And speaking of Giselle, the other thing I think about a lot is Java Card. Mm. Um, and I think about it for two reasons. And one of them is that people who live in the Bay Area, uh, like me, who ride public transit. Does the BART card use Java Cards? Use Java Card. Yes. The Clipper card is a job. The Clipper, this is actually fascinating. What? The person to talk to about this is not me, but Manish. Okay. Um, because all of the cool BART facts that I know I learned from Manish, <laughs> who is like the like ultimate transit geek. However, I can tell you a very cool story about how Clipper card works, which is that Clipper card is kind of unique among most of the transit cards in the United States, at least, because unlike most of them, the Clipper card is an actual store of value mm -hmm. yeah because most so so for mo for other folks most cards just end up being a an id like sometimes there's some right. cryptographic proof around there to like yeah. to make sure that you are the one true one but most of them are yeah. just like okay beyond all the layers yeah. you are proven to be this yeah. person it's a proof of your bank account or a proof of an account with the system that lives in the internet yeah have you, you've been to the Bay Area, I imagine. You've yeah. probably used a Clipper card? No. Okay. Okay. So one, so the thing about the Clipper card is that the Clipper card was introduced relatively early in the like history of transit smart cards, mm -hmm. right? And one of the things that they wanted to do with the Clipper card is they wanted to make it, they wanted to make it so that you could use it for BART, obviously, mm -hmm. but also for San Francisco Muni. 
which is like San Francisco light rail bus system. Uh, and also for AC Transit, which is the Alameda County bus system. Um, and also for Caltrain, which is like heavy commuter rail. Mm-hmm. Some of those systems... Okay, so like the AC Transit buses don't have any kind of internet connection. And this is like Mm. the 90s. And it might actually be hard to give them an internet connection. And this is way before like tap to pay or like the Oyster card or like any of this was a thing. Nowadays, they do have an internet connection that you can use for tracking the bus, but it like mostly doesn't work. So like BART, like BART stations are huge. It's a subway system. The infrastructure is like, there aren't that many stations. They're giant you could definitely run like fiber into all of those stations. So you could make the BART machines when you like scan to go through the turnstile that could just use a system like the one you described where the card just has an ID. The buses, especially the AC transit buses cannot do this at the time that Clipper card is being invented. Uh, There's like, and, and when you get on a bus, you scan on the machine on the bus, you know, they're not like they, they don't want to put every bus stop, some internet connected device. So at the time, they cannot really connect those buses to the internet. So what they have to do is they come up with a system where when you're at a BART station, they have machines that you can use to like, those are internet connected. You put your credit card in or you put your your bank account in and they put money on the Clipper card. And then the Clipper card has dollars stored in it that when you swipe the Clipper card at like a, a, a reader, it subtracts some of that. And then stores the money in the bus. And this is the best part. The best part is that at the end of... Also for audio is my eyes are huge right now. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. James's eyes just like bugged out. It was amazing. So this is the best part. Every night at the end of bus service, when all the buses go back to the bus depot, they have an Ethernet guy. Like, okay, like people go on the bus, they start cleaning it, doing maintenance stuff, whatever. One of the people is the Ethernet guy, just walks around with an Ethernet cable. He plugs the Ethernet cable into each bus. Downloads the money. (laughs) All of the money that that bus has accumulated over its day of service is like downloaded and then goes into like AC Transit's bank account. How How did we end up in the future where we have Bitcoin and not like... Clipper as the like number one store of value. I want Ethernet. Right. Clipper, it, unlike some <laughs> cryptocurrencies, the Clipper card really is a durable <laughs> store of value. <laughs> and, and I think about this a lot because I just think it's hilarious. It also has caused me like practical problems in my life, which is that you, they have a thing now where you can like hook the Clipper card up to your bank account so that like when your Clipper card runs dry, it just like automatically takes 20 bucks out of your bank Mm -hmm. account and puts it on the Clipper card. And this is very nice, especially when you're a person like me who just like forgets to use the machine at the BART station to put money on my Clipper card. The problem is that this doesn't work if you're getting on the bus. Mm. Because the bus has no way to talk to your bank account. (laughs) So if you're, so if you, like I used to live in Oakland and the place I used to live, I would take the bus to the BART station. Mm. Um, And then I would get on the BART and I would go to my office. And the problem is that if I got on the bus, I needed to know that my Clipper card had like at least $2 for bus fare on Mm. it. Because it could not, like, if you get on the bus and you're, or if, if you're, you're, you know, scanning to get on BART, which, like a big subway station turnstile, and your Clipper card has zero dollars on it, it just downloads some money onto it. But if you get on the bus, 
they say, oh, your Clipper card has no money on it. You can't get on the bus unless you have like a couple bucks in your pocket or whatever. And then the bus driver lets you on. So that actually has caused like real problems for me <laughs> in my life. Nowadays, the BART, like this actually happened like last year. It now also works with Apple Pay. And so if you have the like Clipper card, Apple, Apple wallet thing, that will just take money out of your bank account, right? Because your phone is connected to the internet because you have cell service, but they never... They never wired it up so that the buses could do like a direct deposit, even though the buses are now internet connected. And so like the Apple Pay thing just sort of did an end run around this. But that happened like last year. So the first couple of years that I lived (laughs) in the Bay Area, I like the thing of like automatically putting money on the Clipper card, like kind of useless for me because I had to get on the bus to get to the BART station where I could put money on the Clipper card. Anyway, I just I I love these like massively. I'd say over they feel over engineered now, but like they were the only option at that point. And I'm sure it was, yeah, it was groundbreaking. It, like the only thing that yeah. can make me think of is like 90s sitcoms, like the plot mm-hmm. points of every 90s sitcom, all of them could be defeated if you could text right. someone. If, if you have a cell phone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like if you call someone and be like, what? This person has gone missing or, oh no, they forgot this yeah. or, oh no, they did this. And then like hundred yeah. percent of like Seinfeld episodes could have been solved right. in 30 seconds with a text message and like yeah. it's the exact same thing of yeah. like oops the entire like over-engineered bart java f- financial system mm-hmm. could just like this is just like okay you put like a, a gsm modem in the bus yeah oh we, we put 2g in uh in the bus oh it, it's fine now like <laughs> yeah yeah actually that's the other thing is that um bay area still has 2g service specifically oh, yeah, because of ac transit buses um they have like paid the service providers to keep running 2g service <laughs> like releasing the 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 spectrum and stuff yeah because they don't want to replace the 2G <laughs> modems that are used for the like crappy bus tracking system that doesn't really work. That's supposed to tell mm. you if the bus is on time. They don't want to upgrade that to 3G. Uh, so they just like keep paying whatever like telecom yeah. provider is like responsible. If they just keep shelling out like more and more money to be like the only 2G customer. Anyway, that's a cool Bart story. We got here because we were talking about Giselle. Yes. Uh, and then I like derailed us into java card which i just think is like hilarious <laughs> um the other thing i like about java card is that do you know about the java card ring yes like the one wire ring like yeah yes i think about that constantly i wish i had <laughs> one of those i want to see if i can find one on like ebay or something because i just like really want the java ring i feel like that would be a very good like if you are getting married to someone who is like an even bigger <laughs> nerd than you you should like propose with like a java ring nice and the, like the final thing that i wanted to anyway to point out on the the coming full away around yeah i think i had something else but i'll i'll, I'll wrap up with this one instead because I'm, my I'm brain's sorry, totally we... <laughs> off the rails too but i yeah. love that you come you came to your operating system from a perspective of like there is idle someone is wrong on the internet and i have to make it right like the like the ideological <laughs> well the person who's wrong on the internet is linus torvalds Oh, I thought you were gonna say like Ken Thompson, but like <laughs> and Ken, well, um, Ken Thompson before him. Ken Thompson is fucking wrong. Actually, I think Ken Thompson made a lot of like reasonable decisions. Like this is the thing I will actually defend yeah. Ken. You and I talked about this at some point, where it's like, yes, there was a Twitter yes. thread that was like we were talking about something, and you're like, do you think 
can talk like if we could go back in time we were talking we were talking about something it was like yeah if you could go back in time what do you think would blow his mind or would he even want this right i think we were talking about like would he want rust and i think that was actually that was an argument i had with um a friend of the show michael Gattazzi, oh, okay yeah um like a couple years ago that i had brought back up when we were talking about this yeah, yeah. uh and it was like my point was like as an engineer he probably would have been like that's great. I can't do right. it now. So sounds great. Yeah. But, you know, you have fun with that. Yeah. Like Michael was like, oh, the C programming language has caused so much problems. And like, if somebody had just told Ken about the borrow checker, it would have all been fixed. And I was like, I think that your thesis that the C programming language has caused so many problems is true. But I think that like, it probably wouldn't make sense for Ken to use the borrow checker because the reason that the C compiler, like all of the function prototypes have to be declared before they're used is because the C compiler <laughs> a is a single like... <laughs> pass compiler, you know, and it's a single pass <laughs> compiler because you don't want it to take any longer to compile your C program on a PDP 11 than it already takes, yeah. which is way too long. And like the, the, the PDP 11 probably yeah. doesn't have enough memory to run the kind of analysis that Rust runs. You know, and so I'm like, <laughs> my computer often doesn't right. have the kind of memory necessary <laughs> yeah. to run the analysis that Rust runs. Right. And the other thing is that no one's PDP 11 was connected to the internet unless they worked at DARPA. There were like four PDP 11s on the internet at the time. And they got to yeah. talk to each other. And, and that was great. And all of those people work for the Department of Defense. So it's not like the internet is filled with people with like other PDP 11s that want to murder your PDP 11 that's the world we live in now, but that's not the world Ken lived in. And I don't think that choice would have made sense for him. The person that fucked up is not Ken. The person or the people that fucked up to me in my like view of history is the people who kept using Ken's stuff instead of making new stuff for like all of the nineties and like all of the, the aughts and like most of the 2010s, those people were making the mistake of like, but that's, but that's exactly the point that I was getting at is that there has been, I think the thing that has been holding so many people as people, as like human, the humans that do the engineering, there is only so much context and complexity. One person can keep in their mind. And there's yes. maybe even an order of magnitude variance from person to person, depending on the topic, depending on the time of their life, depending on whatever, or the people that surround them and motivate them and stuff like that. But like not a lot more than an mm -hmm. order of magnitude, mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah. This is like, I don't know how to do anything well, useful but on the computer. You do, like, but like everyone has a band no, of stuff or, or a, yeah. a, you know, even a, a stripe of things that they can do. And that's one of those like interesting things about Rust is sometimes it takes away some of that complexity mm -hmm. because one, mm -hmm. you can offload a lot of it to the compiler to be like, well, I wrote a library that was safe a month ago. Right. Thanks, computer me. You, you can keep checking that and I won't have to remember that. Yeah. Or like... I don't need to context switch whether I'm writing an application or a network stack or an operating system, whatever. Like yeah. it's still rust. Like I'm using different bits of rust, but like it's, it's still rust. And right. It's all the same, all the same language. You can even use the same crates. No people you can are trying to get Tokyo, Tokyo working and, on. Or, or, or you can't use Tokyo. You can even sort of use tracing and embedded in someday, someday, <laughs> someday it's going to be better. Um, I just, I can't fix some of it in, v1 but in v2 i'm gonna fix a bunch of the stuff that makes it like not <laughs> great for like embedded folks they're just doing different stuff um i can't make it as fast as d format yeah because it's like impossible to do that without doing exactly without doing exactly the thing that you did it's impossible to make it that good but i the only way the only way to go faster is to do less yeah and like that's the difference is tracing is doing 
like, more stuff. Deformat doesn't do filtering. Do. It's yeah. not doing aggregation or anything like that. Yeah. I did get rid of the one mandatory allocation nice. in V2. So you can now use it without alloc at all. Um, and you can get rid of like mycelium used to have like a bump allocator that was used to allocate like one box for tracing before using the like real allocator mm. and that it just like instantly leaked that part I got rid of. So you can now compile it without linking liballoc. It's like, it's going to be about as good as it can be for embedded people. When I finish O2 without compromising, like, your primary use case, you know what I mean? Well, yeah, I, I actually think the D format is like extremely good for my primary use case too. Hmm. In the like, it, a lot of the stuff that you're doing is very cool. It introduces like one hurdle, which is that I mean, I I've never generally been involved with D format other than hyping it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I, I sort of thought that was your thing. As a, so, like, I worked at Ferris for a number of years, but like, uh, D format came out of Jorge's brain oh, it was and then a lot thing. of like there's a lot of people at ferris who worked at it like but i think it was primarily Jonas and jorge and okay tanks and um lata i think who did most of the work i've just been the hype man for like a lot of stuff people associate with me because yeah. <laughs> one thing that i do <laughs> is fair. i'm a loud mouth better than a lot of other people are a loud mouth so like yeah and I'm going to be honest and like, sorry to Jorge, because I had always assumed that format was like James's project because oh, James no. is the only person who's ever talked to me about it. Oh, no, no. I'm just hype man. Like, and okay. almost all the stuff that you like, or a lot of times at, at Ferris, like people have been mentioning things and I'll go, you spend that time on this and glue it together with mm -hmm, this. Mm -hmm. And like, I can't take any of the engineering credit, but like the, like, go for it, make time. And then yeah. I just like shit post on Twitter for months and months and months until it rings around in people's head and they yeah. don't forget about it. Like that's absolutely yeah. my job. Whereas like the operating system stuff that I'm working on now is I've come at it from a very different perspective because my approach has been, you certainly have, how terrible can I make this and get away with it? Because I have such trouble yeah. keeping context and things like that. Like I remember weird details, but like keeping motivation and things like that going, where like my syscall interface is like, like you said, reusing crates from other parts. I literally use Serday for my syscall interface because that's actually awesome. Because <laughs> I'm like the, the fact that you can even do yeah, that. I'm like I'm not going to be able to keep together a binary format. Right. So Serday, cool. Like and like that's one of those like I'm going to push. This is my like much more. I I was a computer engineer when I went to school, so like I didn't mm -hmm, take the mm -hmm. compiler classes or things like that. I took a lot more embedding classes and things like that. But my approach has always been much more like all right. How bad can it get and we still get away with it mm -hmm. and like, but still deliver what I'm trying to do. And like, my goals are very low for my operating system. And I know you feel this, but like, my goal well, is like, same. what can I put together that doesn't fall apart? And maybe I can have a text editor or maybe make some like yeah. audio synthesizer music type stuff with it. But like, my, my goals are very low, but like, it's surprising how much you can get away with like it's it's the bad solutions live forever or whatever it is like the mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, good code however I mean, there's there's something like good code yeah. something something bad code never dies like i think that's exactly the like the unix stuff is is like when you're putting this power into more people's hands it it opens the door for more things because historically if you had to mm -hmm, keep the context mm -hmm. of how all this stuff like the sys calls and the things like that like you'd get one person out of a hundred that, that either was able or willing to like sink that much time. Otherwise you just build on someone else's stuff. Cause you go, look, I can't like syscalls, not my thing or databases, not my thing or like network stacks, not my thing. And so you just go, 
that's a box and it's mm-hmm. lovely and I can use it, but I'm not going to touch it. Right. And it works, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. you build on top of it because that's all your brain has for cycles sure. for. But like the more you can make that accessible to other folks is interesting because mm-hmm. I think you can like get away with a lot of crimes and end up making some like really particularly interesting stuff. Ironically, the place that I really copped out is the place where it seems like you have been doing a bunch of like fun stuff for your your OS and computer project is that you're making a computer, mm. right? Like you are doing like a bunch of really neat like firmware stuff and like hardware stuff that I totally copped out on. I'm like, my system is going to run on an x86 PC. I'm not going to write a BIOS. I'm not going to write a bootloader. I'll go back and write the bootloader when the kernel's done. You know, like that stuff I would like to learn. I would like to do that. I would like to write firmware. I would like to write a BMC someday. I want to make a BMC for my desktop (laughs) just because I think it would be extremely funny. I want to make like a PCI card that does like BMC shit. But I'm probably never going to do it because I have like this other project. So I copped out on going like, I don't know. I'm going to assume like I have a lot of problems with the way that like the hardware that we all have in our Mm. homes works like i think that x86 is kind of trash but like i'm just gonna i'm not gonna solve that problem i'm gonna i'm gonna accept okay i have a thinkpad it has an x86 cpu in it i'm probably always gonna have an x86 cpu in my house i'll write the operating system make sure it runs on that someday i'll make it run on risk five maybe (laughs) that would be cool someday i'll write a bootloader someday i'll write my own firmware you start from for now i'm just gonna start from like this is like one of those main things of teaching and learning and stuff like that like you to go anywhere you have to have one solid foot and for me like i've been Mm -hmm, writing bare mm -hmm. metal code for these microcontrollers and stuff like that and bootloaders and stuff so like that was my stable foot and i have no operating system experience other than like you know i vaguely know how it's supposed to work because you write bare metal stuff that pretends to do that kind of stuff sometimes but like you've been coming at it's been interesting to see you come from like the totally different direction but i love that the two the place that we intersect is like data structures and concurrency are like Mm -hmm. you and i will send stuff to each other on twitter where you're just like check this out or i'll be like i wrote this terrible allocator and you'll be like nah check this out (laughs) look at this dumb thing i did we could spend we could fill another two-hour podcast episode talking about lock-free algorithms i think but we're not going to touch it today we can't yeah we can't uh that's my other other love (laughs) that sort of like elaborate ballet dance that you do on on thin ice while everyone's holding knives and you spin it, you speed it up to like 200% and then like try not to get murdered. I have a, my other, I have a guilty admission about lock for algorithms is that I, I don't actually care about performance. I just really like putting data structures in static memory so that I can just use them right. everywhere. And to do that, you like, it's just but easiest if you things. use lock free algorithms because you yeah. use atomics for everything. Well, the other thing is that, like, in Mycelium, we've had, like, a million problems where, like, the, the like, panic or CPU fault handler hmm. deadlocks because it touches something that has a lock in it because I wanted to dump its state. Oops. You know? Yeah. So it actually matters a lot in your, like, totally single-threaded, single-core environments if you can, like, if... Like, you can always write, like, oh, force unlock all of the mutex because I'm in, like, an ISR, but, like, it's nicer to not have to write that, you know, because that always feels very dirty. And that's the thing that I'm avoiding right now is, like, yeah, okay, I can load a program, but, one, it has user space isolation, which is great. If you touch anything, you'll get a hard fault, but I haven't written a hard fault handler, so if you do something you're not supposed to, it's still crashing the CPU. Crashes safely, but it's still Mm -hmm. crashing the CPU, and 
I have no idea how I'm going to exit. Pro- Exiting a program is much scarier than entering a program. Oh, I spent like a ton of time on like the the fault and interrupt and panic handlers because I thought that like the first most important feature for the operating system to have is when it crashes, it needs to make like a beautiful crash screen that gives you all of the information about what went wrong because, you know, you have to sort of, do you, are you familiar with um, the writing of James Mickens? I don't think so. Oh, you should look him up. He's hilarious. What would I know from him? Um, he's a professor. He works at Microsoft Research. Um, but none of that's what's important about him. Because <laughs> the important thing about him is that he's written these like Usenix columns that are just like hilariously funny. He's like one of the funniest writers in software. Um, he's written one about like systems programmers and like, it's like why systems programmers are the people that I want to have like on my apocalypse team, which is the one that I'm thinking of because there's a bit in it where he's sort of like, I'm trying to like debug my like network file system. And I like walk over into the other room where there's like someone from the like HCI research group at MSR. And the person's like, Oh, you know, how, how's your like project going? I'm like, Oh, it's terrible. I have like this, like pointer that's like missile it's like aligned on like a uh, a seven byte alignment and like why would you ever have that because only like an evil pointer would be aligned on seven and like what's happening and like this is just all insane and everything is broken and the colleague is like oh have you tried like printing some like debug logs to the console and james mickens is like well i can't do that because literally everything that i need to do in order to print some debug logs to the console is broken because i've broken all of my tools with my tools <laughs> yeah that's and exactly who i thought you were talking about i yes, was like is this the that's, guy that's who's like yes. uh, the tool like yeah i've broken all of my i've used my tools to break all of my tools right that's why mycelium's crash screen is like really good and i've put a lot of love into it because <laughs> like sometimes it's the only way to get any information out um because i have not written a file system or anything yet so i can't like make crash dumps and save them on the file system which would be like very nice so instead i just like draw a big red screen and i'm like well something bad happened and here's like all of the registers i can think of um i i'm still cheating and so like my the actual kernel of my os is using Arctic, okay which is like a an embedded systems framework in rust but you can kind of it's structured into like you got some interrupts which are all of right. your event driven tasks and you've got idle which is just your like user mode but i then as soon as you enter idle mode i jump to protected mode and launch apps from there mm-hmm. but Every time you, and there's actually two different stacks on Cortex-M. There's the user or the process stack and the main stack. Mm -hmm. And there's a neat hardware feature that every time you jump into an interrupt, it auto switches to a different stack for you. It switches to the main stack rather than the process Mm -hmm. stack, which means my user space application has its own stack. And then every time I service an interrupt, I go back to the main one and Arctic has no concept of a of process stack. Like it assumes that you're running in privilege mode and, and everything like that. So I get all of the like context switching for free because the hardware happens to do that. Right. And instead of having kernel logging, <laughs> I have deformat. Right. So I literally have my debugger attached. And anytime I actually want to debug my kernel, I use like bare metal embedded systems tools yeah. for that. And then I use the console when I'm trying to debug that. But eventually, like you said, I'm going to have to like the user space app. It should at least have some in band way where I don't need to have a physical debugger right. attached to figure out what was going wrong yeah. with my hardware that's the cool thing about x86 is that you don't have any kind of debugging tooling 
right? There is no like JTAG port. I mean, there might be on like some motherboards, but all it lets you do is like debug the motherboard firmware. There is not. Well, there's like Apple ones where like over USB-C, there's yeah. like a special cable you can make that basically ends up being like an in-circuit debugger for the kernel i think on on some future episode of the podcast please remember to ask me about the apple hdmi to USB-C dongle unless you already know about this story is that the one that's it's a computer inside of an adapter yes it is that one i yeah. think about that a lot i i love and hate that thing well the yeah, one that, I, the one that only works on macs because only the mac driver knows how to like <laughs> download the like fucked up minix kernel onto it yeah, yeah yeah that's the thing is every computer and this is like that was the 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 banner of an acro was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. your computer is a distributed system. Right. Stop hiding from it. Like, because that's how like we have these systems of systems and just every problem is a distributed systems problem, which like I went to build the first, this is my second attempt at building a personal computer. The mm-hmm. first attempt, I fell down the rat hole of building a network stack because I realized yeah. to get my computers to talk to other computers, I had to have a network stack. And that's where like, things got bad and cursed for yeah. a while. Well, this is kind of, this is kind of like, you're like a hardware guy looking up in a lot of ways. And I'm kind of mm-hmm. like a software girl, like looking down. Mm-hmm. And I also learned all of this stuff from trying to program x86 and yep. you're like reading the manual and it's like, Oh, there's the like six, the, <laughs> I don't remember the model number. There's this thing called a pick, which is like a tiny chip with like eight, mm-hmm like eight leads coming out of it. That's an internet controller. And oh, there's two of them. And the second one is mapped to the first one. And for some reason, Intel made all of the interrupt vectors that it likes it when it boots, it's mapped to like these interrupt vectors. And those are like, those conflict with the ones of like some (laughs) of the CPU exceptions. And And for the embedded folks out there, that's not pick microcontroller. That's the programmable interrupt controller. Yeah, it's programmable interrupt controller. Which is basically a little computer that is your interrupt. It's like the NVIC on Cortex-M. Yeah, a very little controller. It's barely a computer. It's just sort of a mux. It's digital logic. You know, it, it yeah. like barely, it, it, it is not like a microcontroller. It's just like a mux. Mm. Yeah. And now they actually have that. You like also like this is the other thing is that this thing is obsolete and you're not supposed to use it. Um, but it's there and it works. And it has to. Uh, now th- they also have a thing called APIC, mm. which is the Advanced Programmable Interrupt Controller, right? And this actually is a bit closer to a microcontroller. Yeah. It's a little bit smarter and it can do like stuff and you can like program it from like your code and it's like very smart. Um, but the problem is that if you want to talk to it, you have to like parse the AHCI tables <laughs> and like that sucks. And so I haven't done that yet. Um, but that, that's sort of one of my next big projects anyway. So for me, like I'm a software person and I'm like looking at this, like Intel manual in college. And that was sort of when I learned like, oh, my computer is just like a bunch of computers (laughs) that are all talking to each other. And like the CPU is the one that like, we all actually know how to program, but it also is in many ways. And the CPU is secretly multiple computers. (laughs) Oh, I mean, these days it super is, but like in the Intel, the Intel book is like written as though it isn't, Mm. you know, it's sort of like written as though it's like the eighties and it's a 386, which like maybe actually is a single piece of computer on that die (laughs) and then there's just like a bunch of like bios chips and shit on the motherboard that it talks to but and the intel book is sort of written as though this is still true even though it's like definitely not but you're like oh like what the shit is like a a, an ioa pick that oh that's a computer and i have to program (laughs) it and the way i program it is by like 
shooting a bunch of bytes into it that all tell it like you have to be in this mode. And for some reason, why do it's why did the interrupt vectors on the on the pick? Why are they the same as the interrupts? that the CPU fires and the first, the very first thing you do before you can handle any interrupts on x86 is you have to like put the pick into like programming mode and mm. send it a bunch of commands that reprogram it to put all of its interrupt vectors in a place that don't like fuck it up. Uh, and it's kind of like, why didn't they just do that? Well, the reason they didn't do that is because like the very first, like, th- like, uh, like non volatile RAM was too expensive. Like, yeah. Well, but the reason they did it is because the very first like Intel PC BIOS, right? The like from IBM, the BIOS chip, the one that like everyone then knocked off and opened up the like world of PC clones. The IBM BIOS remapped the pick interrupts to put like I, I guess Intel didn't think of it. Uh, IBM BIOS remapped the pick interrupts so that they're like not in a fucked up place. And then everyone cloned that BIOS because they figured out that they could reverse engineer it without like infringing IBM's copyright. Everyone made PC clones. (laughs) Someone decided, oh, we want to put like a 386 in a PC clone. So the 386 also has to start out this way because otherwise it'll get fucked up. And like now, like every x86 device that you might ever buy is just like like this because somebody in the 80s like thought that it would be cool to reverse engineer IBM's BIOS. Okay. Okay. I am calling it here. We we need to stop. Yeah, we need to stop. Yeah, we need to stop because I can talk to another talk to you for another two hours, but it's getting about midnight here in Berlin. So oh shit, sorry man. Is, oh no, it's no worries. So before we wrap up, is there anything you want to plug? Anything that you're super excited about that you want people to see? Follow you on Twitter, Twitter handle that you want people to go look at? Yeah, my my Twitter handle is Myco Liza M Y C O L I Z A. Don't look at mycelium. Uh, cause it sucks and it only does one thing you should actually, the thing that I would really like to get people involved with are Tokyo console and tracing, mm. um, which I actually do for my day job. And I would love like contributors with that said, if you are the kind of person who actually like knows about operating systems and stuff, and you want to hack on mine, I would love that because that would probably make me work on it more. <laughs> so that's my secret thing is I'm going to send you some hardware for my operating system and hope that we can just like smush the two of them together. I'm very excited about that. I'm I'm very I would love to see if I can port some of the code that I've written to run on James's computer because I think I think it's going to be very cool when you make your computer and I make my operating system and I can make my operating system run on your computer. That would be dope. I think that's going to kick ass. Yeah. That's the that that will make me that will appeal to all of my like desire to write everything by hand on my own, <laughs> which you can, no one can do because we're people and we exist in community and we rely on others and no one can specialize in everything. Yeah. So it's cool that there's like also someone who wants to like reinvent their world <laughs> and uh, the gap, because you know? then maybe we can team up. Definitely. Uh, so I'm very, very excited to receive my James PC. <laughs> I still need a better name for it. Solder it together. But yeah. Okay. Well, it is excellent talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. I am super pumped to talk again. Yeah, let's do another one. Yeah. Maybe after I get my hardware from you. <laughs> yes, that would be an excellent follow-up of like, look, we were both wrong about operating systems whenever we posted right. that. I think this might end up having to be two episodes anyway, so. Oh, I am quite sure that I half the things I said are definitely wrong. Um, <laughs> That's good. It'll, it's more interaction. Okay. That's, tr- That's right. Awesome. Okay. I will talk. You get some sleep. I'm going to turn my air conditioning back on. Yeah, it's probably getting hot. (laughs) This was a lot of fun. Okay. Talk to you later. Peace. Bye.